setting up structures to organize communication. Those are bread and butter of, of good organization and good teamwork. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the show, we have Professor Sarah Singer. She is a professor of primary care and population health and organizational behavior based at Stanford University. Professor Sarah Singer is an esteemed published academic and heads up the Helio Lab, which stands for Health, Leadership, Innovation, and Organizational Labs, which is looking to transform healthcare through research, education, and outreach initiatives. Professor Sarah Singer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Now, before we jump into your area of expertise in the field of organizational behavior and how that applies in healthcare, I'd love to spend a little bit of time learning about your early career, how that shaped uh, your outlook, and how you came to find yourself doing research in healthcare. Okay, I think I have to go a little bit earlier than my earlier career to answer that question, which is to say, or to acknowledge that I'm the daughter of a surgeon. And I spent a lot of my youth hanging around hospitals and medical offices because I got dragged as a child uh, around that. I actually, he was also the kind of surgeon who would go to patients' homes to do house calls. So I lived through that very different era of medical care. Um, But then my earlier career was shaped, I think, first by uh, my first job in healthcare was at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, where I worked in strategy and had an opportunity to see how a integrated uh, integrated delivery system uh, operated, uh, and I think it was a pretty good one. And then I spent uh, time doing health policy work, where I became increasingly frustrated that there was not enough understanding and appreciation for the organizations and the role that kind of the important role that leaders played and managers played in making those systems run just regardless of whether or not the policies uh, were aligned. And so when I went back to do my PhD, it was to get at that challenge to, you know, hope that the policymakers would get the get the right incentives in place and make sure that information was flowing in the ways that it would, but to work within the organizations on leadership, on management, on shaping organizational cultures, on getting teams to work together, um, getting people to collaborate, not just teams within organizations, but uh, you know, throughout the organization and with other organizations on behalf of patients who obviously go see lots of different uh, people in lots of different places to get the care they need. When you reflect on the work that you observed uh, with your father being a surgeon and doing house calls, how do you contrast that with when you actually got out and started working yourself on on strategy and policy? (laughs) Interesting question. We obviously don't do a lot of house calls these days anymore, but I guess one of the things I learned from my dad was how important it was to listen to the patient. So he would do things like he would listen to the patient or the patient's family, and uh, he would realize that a patient uh, was not eating well. And so he worked with the family based on their means to identify opportunities to feed them. So, for example, he took a turkey baster and he taught the family to feed the patient using a turkey baster to make sure that they were getting ample nutrition. And it allowed the patient to live at home and it was before hospice, I guess. So live at home until they could die comfortably there with their loved ones. And it was a really 
big deal. And so when I carry that kind of thing with me to uh, in thinking about how care should be organized. So when I work on topics like integrated care, I think about that being kind of from the patient's perspective. And when we talk about how care should be organized and optimized, it's it's got to be reflective of uh, people's needs and families' needs and communities' needs, as opposed to kind of what it is the system has been designed to do. The system actually needs to be responsive to what the patients and, and people need, um, is how I go about thinking about, you know, where we need to head. It sounds like some really powerful experiences and, and quite formative. Uh, I wonder if there's any connection between how uh, managers and leaders also listen to to the workforce, the frontline workforce, and uh, allow them to thrive and flourish um, in the ways that they, they know that they need. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, I actually think the best leaders and managers do a lot of really good listening. Um, you know, they also do a lot of good delegating. So they identify people with the expertise and they and they allow them to do their job. But mostly uh, what they can do is listen to people and to identify what the what the right potential solutions are based on people with sort of lived experience or or with expertise because they have uh, they've been living on the front lines and understand those problems. So it's a matter of kind of listening, interpreting uh, pulling that together based on a sort of a larger set of experiences and knowledge. Um, and that's really an important aspect of what leaders do. I'm glad we sort of jumped straight into to the leadership management. At times, they're seen as a dichotomy. At, at other times, it seems like there's um, some some crossover. Uh, how would you sort of distinguish between those two two concepts? Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. It's one of the things that I do in class, as you know, uh, because you were in, in my class when we talked about it. I do think it's, it's important for people to acknowledge differences, even though you might see the same person leading and managing you know, at different times, but to recognize that the roles are quite different. So let me start with management, kind of management the organization of sort of day-to-day activities and, and people to try and get the work of the organization done, I think is different than what the leader needs to do, which is sometimes kind of being up on the balcony um, and recognizing what, uh, recognizing or, or look, going out to learn uh, what it is the strategic direction of the organization needs to be. And then allowing the the managers in the organizations to to do more of the execution work. So even though the same people can exercise leadership, the role of leading and managing is quite different as I see it. It seems like often either maybe in popular culture or, or in workplaces, you know, leadership gets a lot of the the praise and the gets highlighted a lot. Everybody, well, not everybody, but many people want to be leaders, whereas being a manager may may not be seen quite so so exciting. Uh, I'd love for us to spend a little bit of time to dive into a little bit deeper about what does it mean to be a manager and and to be a successful manager. Well, can I comment first on the on the comment that you made, which is uh, interesting too. In my experience of teaching different kinds of students, uh, the praise for different roles varies. And so, when I uh, was teaching MBA students, you know, we'd ask. I actually literally asked the question, "Do you want to be a leader or a manager?" And the MBAs really want to lead. 
if you go to a school of public health where they recognize that a lot of what needs to happen is kind of the hard on the ground operational organizational work they want to be managers and they really um, they really esteem that that role so there are some people out there who think that management is you know the cat's meow and you know god bless those people that we we've got them because it is incredibly important work so there's that difference. I was just reflecting on my own practice, and I think uh, often clinicians who are seeing patients day in, day out, there can be a, um, not quite conflict, but sometimes a differencing of goals and ability to fulfill those goals between themselves and managers. And, and so it can be uh, sometimes challenging relationships where we need to, to get better at working together and understand what which each other's needs are. You know, if there's particular operational goals, throughput, or quality outcomes, or something to that effect that uh, one group is is trying to get that performance out of the other, and, and so sometimes that can be uh, a challenging dynamic. What does it look like to be an effective uh, manager in, in a healthcare setting? Mm, okay, so that's an interesting question, because of course the healthcare setting in many ways is different uh, than than others, although in some ways it's it's less so. I think of it you know, in this regard, it's sort of similar to, for example, an academic institution where you have faculty professors running around and you've got people who are trying to to manage them, uh, make sure that they get to the courses and teach the courses, make sure that the, the grants are doing the things that the grants promise that they would that they'll do. And in the same way, uh, in a healthcare setting, you've got physicians who are trying physicians and other clinicians trying to care for mem- their patients and the and the managers who are trying to make sure that the operations of a particular clinic or a unit within a healthcare setting is working well. And so you've got this strange hierarchical discrepancy because very often it, it's the faculty member or the physician who is seen as a higher status member. So you have a reversal compared to a regular or a, an other kind of uh, organization, a manufacturing organization or, or some other more traditional model. And so finding the right balance there can be can make the management actually quite difficult. So being a manager where you don't have the same kind of status and authority over the people that you are managing is a different kind of challenge. You could really just imagine parallel lines of, of authority or hierarchy within these organizations where uh, physicians relate to each other in, in a particular way. And then the managers in the organization as a whole relates to one another in a, in a slightly different way, perhaps. And then that makes accountability um, and responsibility quite quite challenging when you have uh, subject matter experts um, who can be, you know, absolute technically amazing in their field and what they do for their patients. But that accountability from from the manager's perspective and, and, and the manager is attempting to fulfill the goals of the organization as well, a, a potential tension or, or crossroads between those two groups. That's right. So, you know, you don't have a purely hierarchical model. So you can't have somebody who, you know, sits up at top to say, I want you to do X. And then everybody sort of jumps through whatever hoops the person lays out. Instead, you have a you have a model where you have to be somewhat more strategic. You know, you have to identify your sources of power and use those sources of power to influence uh, the people who you want to uh, enact whatever it is you're asking of them 
to do. Um, hopefully that you're asking them to do things that they want to do anyway. And so there's an alignment and, and it works really well that way. But where, where you don't, you can look to where you've got power. You've got personal sources of power because, you know, you've done this person a favor before. And so they owe you one. You've got positional sources of power because you, you are in fact hired to make sure that the trains run on time, uh, or you have relational power. You know, somebody who, um, uh, who has kind of some influence, a great relationship with the person who you're trying to influence. Those, those sources of power can be brought to bear to try to make someone, uh, make someone change. And then you have your ability to communicate. If you're very effective at explaining to someone why something needs to happen and how something needs to happen, you're more likely to be effective at persuading them to, uh, to do what you're asking them to do. I'm really glad you brought up power and influence because I think learning about that topic has been really interesting and really pushed me a little bit because, you know, those terms at, at first I was maybe a little bit allergic to, to to power and influence, seeing them as a way to to dominate, to be, you know, abused perhaps uh, in some way or shape. Uh, but I guess in some sense they are just they are artifacts of of complex organisations. You know the ability to to mobilise effort maybe is a is an easier way to, uh, to 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 soften that language. I wonder how does how does power and influence shift throughout somebody's career? Uh, maybe they become more uh, more senior, they gain more responsibility. Uh, everybody just assumes well well you've moved up the chain, so therefore you have more power, you know, fix the things that need to be fixed. But what, what kind of really happens when, when those statuses change? Well, so first I want to acknowledge, I think your your definition of power is a good one. And, uh, and also to say that you're not alone in thinking of power as a dirty word. Uh, a lot of people initially kind of respond negatively to it, except what you really need to do is think about it as a sort of a, a potential force, as the ability to influence people to do something for the better, not necessarily for for the worse. And it may be something that they want to be doing anyway. Uh, But to answer your question over the about over the course of someone's career, I guess I think about power as something that is sort of socially relational. So at any stage in your career, you probably have uh, power sources over other people. Um, And as you move up that career, you may have more power over more people, um, but they'll probably always continue to be people um, who have more power over you. So, you know, you need to continually think about what are my sources of power in relation to the people who I'm trying to influence and which which sources can I bring to bear to exert the kind of influence that is going to be persuasive for somebody. Yeah. And I, and I sort of reflect on that thinking about what someone in, in any sort of position and organization uh, what their network is uh, again one of these things that I was pretty unfamiliar with is, is what is a network and why does it matter and uh, these are you know relationships that you have where people uh, sit in different parts of of the organization or in other sectors and that you can build coalitions with those groups uh, like-minded people uh, looking to solve problems and sometimes just waiting for that problem to be solved or looking at your job description and saying, well, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, say that I need to do this uh, isn't, isn't good enough. And so you have to kind of start reaching out and 
building those sorts of coalitions. But I think the other thing is is thinking about the type of change that you are attempting to do. You know, big, small. Is it is it similar to the organisation's current mission or or objectives, or is it different to that? I wonder if you could comment for how the type of change might impact how you go about making that change and and what things to be considering. Yeah, that's a it's a great question and it's an important one for people to keep in mind because um, you can't accomplish. Uh, different changes in the same, you know, by using the same approaches, you have to really think about what it is you're trying to accomplish. And if you think about it intuitively, it's, it's, I think, easiest. Some changes are more divergent uh, than others, meaning that uh, you're asking more change of more people. And change is scary for people. It's hard for people. It's something that they don't prefer to do. Uh, And so recognizing how much you're asking them to change is uh, really important to knowing how to approach the change you're trying to achieve. So if you've got a really divergent change, you want to sort of identify the people who are already on board because they're interested in doing it. And then you want to pick off the people who you think are kind of relatively easy to, to persuade, uh, but but always recognizing that there's going to be some people out there for whom this change is just too big uh, and it's going to be really difficult. And so getting those people to change is going to take time. It's going to take getting everybody else on board first. It's going to take a lot of information and a lot of uh, sort of a lot of power combined you know, combined power of a variety of people, including the people who do hold sway with the with those particular individuals. So that matters a lot. Just touching on your comment about understanding the organizational context, uh, for many of us, it can be overwhelming to know even where to start. And, and I would suggest just start by starting to ask some questions and committing to follow it through by talking to people, uh, reaching out to managers and leaders, taking people out for coffee, sending an email and try to really unearth the landscape because not only will you then understand the context, but you will refine your problem, possible solutions, but critically identify relationships that might be vital to any success for the change to actually happen. Now, often when we're talking about change in healthcare, many of us think of the change needing to be radical or revolutionary innovation. But I wondered if you could touch on how many of us should better perhaps think about innovation within a healthcare organization. Yeah, actually, and it's I think it's important in healthcare to recognize that most of the change that goes on isn't that kind of revolutionary change uh, that you see sort of every time there's a real paradigm shift. Instead, a lot of the kind of innovation that we see is is very incremental and and very uh, much about kind of learning how to do something a little bit better. And so that's why within the healthcare setting, we have had uh, a proliferation of management uh, schema like lean management and um, continuous quality improvement, because those things are oriented around trying to um, trying to kind of incrementally improve by learning through small tests of change to get better and better and better at doing the things we're already doing it's an important it's an important aspect of making um, patient safety quality you know quality better healthcare more equitable etc how do you feel that managers should support innovation i mean in, in some sense management is 
often viewed as attempting to to reduce variability such that you can get uh, you know high quality regular outputs uh, and perhaps that may be seen as something that dampens the ability to innovate so how do you see that managers you know facilitate um, innovation yeah and it's a hard question particularly in healthcare because you uh, you always have the danger of doing harm to a patient. So you can't have the kind of innovation that's going to do that. But you want to pro- create an environment where people feel like they can make suggestions that might actually make a difference. So, you know, I know I think you've already spoken with Amy Edmondson, who uh, no doubt has talked a lot about sort of psychologically safe environments, but it really is a kind of core concept and key to innovation and a whole lot of other things. But with regard to Uh, with regard to innovation, sort of extending the invitation to people, sort of framing the work as one in which innovation is helpful and and even necessary will open up the possibility for people to to engage and then kind of acknowledging and appreciating the ideas that come forward and, uh, and letting people know, sort of following up to let people know what's going to happen with with the idea, uh, sort of a, giving them a sense of, of efficacy around uh, their contribution. So even if it's not something that you're going to pursue, letting them know that you appreciated it, you spent some time thinking about it, uh, and that it was important that they did it. Uh, we've seen, you know, examples of people in management situations where they've said, you know, if we don't have enough good ideas, I think we should take a break and let people go think about some more ideas so that you can kind of come back and have a better conversation because we need to go, we need to go deeper here. So part of what leaders need to do is to decide, you know, when are we in a situation where it's important that we have a, a lot of new ideas or when are we in a situation where really what we need to do is kind of incrementally improve and framing the conversation so people understand the kind of innovation that that you're looking for. Now, I'd I'd like to take this conversation towards uh, culture because I I feel like uh, many of these aspects can can only be truly realized when you have a culture that is allowing managers to to be supportive, uh, that has frontline workers and and everyone up, up the chain approach problems with a maybe a learning type of mindset but i think rather than talking about all of the the obvious sort of positives in, in, in a great culture around you know recruiting the right people and supporting and socializing and training the right people i'd like to touch on what happens when a culture doesn't go so well i think we've all experienced sometimes it's just a, a feeling uh, when we work in a in an organization or, or or even just going into into a business there is a there is a sense that you know everybody there is is kind of unhappy and perhaps there's a there's a bit of a downward spiral going on in that culture i wondered if you could talk to what what that looks like and perhaps we could talk to uh, the army crew case which is a case that you taught uh, at stanford and part of a master's course yeah it's a great it's a great case i highly recommend and I love to teach it because it is so simplified because it's about a sports team, a, a crew team. And what happens uh, in it or what you what you learn from it is that when you set up two teams to work together, uh, that there is a possibility of a downward cycle. What happens in this instance is that the crew that is assigned to be the varsity 
experiences kind of a lack of team identification because they don't win by quite as much as they think they ought to win by uh, when they're competing against the junior varsity team. And so they don't fully identify with that team. And because of that, team trust never happens. And what's going on in the background is because of that, they're continuing to, to to lose as a team and that generates uh, conflict within the group. And then that sort of creates this downward cycle of poor performance. And uh, as they perform worse, the team identification becomes less and less. The team trust continues to decline and the conflict continues to go up and it moves from being kind of about the, uh, about what the team should be doing. And it gets to be really personal. And when you get down into that downward sort of decline, it is super hard to get back up out of it to to turn that situation around. What I loved about that case as well is is just how methodical, you know, the coach had been with who he chose and, and how uh, people were performing and, and really kind of refining this, this perfect team on paper uh, and yet they they weren't performing and so it was really a really fascinating dive into into that area I agree with you completely but when you when you get into the crux of what what's going on in that case and and how it is you might be able to intervene to have done something differently you know first you recognize that as as early as possible uh, you want to do something because when it gets that into that downward spiral, you're really in a tough, tough situation. And sometimes you don't even see it because you don't even see what's happening because you're so uh, integrated into the problem itself. Uh, But what you want to do very early on is recognize uh, perhaps that, you know, it's not just all about what's on, what's going on on paper, that uh, the team dynamic has to be working really well. And so you want to, you know, establish a set of norms that foster respect and foster trust and make it not okay for people to kind of badmouth each other and badmouth the team in order to promote the team identification. Uh, it's important that that happens early on in a team so that they then kind of the, the identification and the trust reinforce each other and the conflict result. Yeah. What I'm hearing is, is yeah, interventions need to be somewhat drastic and being transparent up front. Uh, saying, you know, this is where we are, this is why we think we are where we are, and this is where we need to get to, and, you know, how how can we get there as a group and really try to uh, promote dialogue and, and foster trust. But some of that needs, you know, you need to show a bit of vulnerability, I think, to, to acknowledge how big that problem is and, and to kind of pull out of that, that nosedive. Can I just comment on that a little bit? Because I, I think you're you're right. There are instances where you need to have a kind of dramatic response. And certainly if you've gone kind of down that downward cycle, it needs to be really dramatic. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be uh, draconian or something like that at, at the beginning. What you what you need to do as a leader is be really mindful of the dynamic. And if you see the downward, if you see a downward decline beginning, you do want to intervene, but it, it doesn't have to be um, strong-handed initially. You do what you want to do is sort of you can open up and ask the question like, are we interacting in the way that we think is going to result in positive team dynamic here, or should we be doing something differently? And you can invite and allow the team to say, you know, no, we're not. Here's what I think we could do differently, and you can you know build it as a team. That doesn't feel to me, you know, super. Um, uh, supercharged or, or challenging or co- confrontative, uh, I think that's just good management. 
I can imagine in other organizations, perhaps you don't have the, the direct, most direct sorts of comparisons. And so sometimes these types of environments may be more uh, insidious and, and perhaps less obvious, particularly if you're just joining an organization as well. How would you suggest someone who's just joining an organization kind of gets to grips with, you know, is, is, this, is this me? Is this my team? Is this how we've always run? You know, how, how would you kind of like identify that, not that you've hit rock bottom, but, uh, but perhaps that, that, that performance is um, under some duress uh, because of the team dynamics? Mm, yes, it's great. I think anybody joining a new organization, the thing to do is uh, sort of learn the lay of the land as, as efficiently as you can. You know, so it's uh, can I take you out to lunch? Let me, you know, l- let me hear a little bit about your perspective and history and and help me understand the dynamic and what should my expectations here be? You know, anybody coming into an organization, I would hope that they actually begin that process even before they get to the organization while they're, while they're interviewing, interviewing and learning about what the organization is like. So you don't hit the, you know, you don't hit the ground on, on day one from a standing start. You will have had some information to support your kind of preliminary, your preliminary perspective when you, when you begin. Yeah, that's some some really useful advice. I wonder if we could uh, shift gears into an area of uh, your focus around team science. Uh, you wrote a, a really interesting paper around leading frontline teams during COVID, and I wondered if you could talk to some of the things that you learned during uh, that research. Yeah, so I guess that research was was together with um, a colleague from Harvard and, and previously a student, Michaela Kerasi, was just our recognition that organizational leaders needed some help in translating or recognizing that we actually had a lot of tools out there from uh, decades of research on teamwork to inform how we should be acting in the COVID era. So, you know, we drew on Richard Hackman's model of, you know, uh, 40 years of research on what promotes team effectiveness, where he talks about there are a set of essentials and a set of enablers. You need to have a real team. You need to have a compelling direction, the right people, supportive context, sound structure. And then the, if you've got all of those things in place, you know, you, you can do some coaching. So we know, we know all of that. We know, though, that in the con- in healthcare sorts of contexts, we don't often have those essentials and enablers, and so we need more kind of teaming on the fly, as as Amy Edmondson likes to talk about it, because we all have all sorts of uh, boundaries that need to be overcome. And in the context of of COVID, we actually think about an additional boundary, which is sort of the, the work life boundary, because everything started to to blend in ways that uh, were uh, unusual and difficult. So. Uh, Mikhail and I designed a new framework that helped people just sort of draw on the best of. So we talked about uh, we talked about the need for structuring the work, giving people clarity about sort of who's on the team, who's in charge, who's responsible for doing what, and all of this needs to happen quickly. But you know the the age old ideas around kind of meetings, like team huddles, setting up structures to organize communication. Those are bread and butter of of good organization and good teamwork. So that sort of structuring was important. Uh, Sort of launching teams, uh, you know, this is sort of what we hear from or learn from Richard Hackman's work early on, that the launch is, is critically important. So think about ways in which we could launch in the context of, of COVID. And now beyond COVID, these still make a lot of sense. But 
when you bring a new group of people, you've got to build trust. And as we were talking about the lessons from the Army crew case, um, you know, it's clear you need to do that early and you need to recognize whether that's going off the rails and you need to find ways of uh, making sure that 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 happens. If you've got a, a group of people who have no prior knowledge or experience of each other, as was often the case in COVID, you've got to find ways of doing it really quickly. So you can sort of structure the way uh, conversation has, you know, happens. You can ask people to reflect on what they're bringing to the team and, and what they need from the other members of the team. And then asking people to trust that everybody was truthful in that dis- description and, and agree to go forward on that basis. We also talk about sort of facilitating the work of the groups by doing things like continuing to emphasize the goals. If you see conflict arising, uh, making sure that you're bringing people back, but giving them a, a sort of a regularized way of uh, of expecting what's going to happen on a daily basis. Uh, we saw that play out during COVID as being really important. And then lastly, sort of sustaining and improving the work that they're doing. We uh, uh, we know from research that having things like structured debriefs to, um, uh, to learn from what's just occurred so that you can integrate that into the next time you're together makes a big difference. Measuring what you're doing, even if it's a, a quick and dirty kind of a pulse measure was very valuable during uh, during COVID when you didn't have the opportunity to do the kind of scientific measurement work that an academic typically likes to do. But it's really important to give people feedback to know how they're doing so that they can take it forward. So we try to create a framework to help people think about how to do teamwork, not just kind of on the fly, but in chaotic um, circumstances. Uh, but it's the same kind of uh, same kinds of things I would recommend to kind of any team under any condition. Your last point is really, I think I want to underline that because uh, when you were going through that, that framework, my first thought was going to, uh, you know, a resuscitation in the emergency room where, you know, you've got uh, different clinicians, different skill sets around the table and everybody somewhat intuitively knows what each other does because of their areas of speciality, but they're obviously it's vital for communication and everybody's sort of rushing in and I think there is a lot to reflect on on your list. But importantly, what you said at the end there is, is its application is, is across healthcare teams. So, so in one way, the resuscitation is a clearer example of this application, but it does not have to be the only application. I agree. It's a great, it's a great example. Uh, you know, another aspect of it in the early on piece is that, you know, when people come in, they, uh, they acknowledge their role. They take a role and then people trust that those people know what to do in that role. And that's a little bit of that kind of building swift trust that we talk about in, in launching a team. Um, but you're absolutely right. The uh, the structure, the facilitation and the sustaining and improvement aspects of what we describe all apply in the context of the resuscitation teams. Now, you're doing lots of really interesting uh, research in, in some other areas. I wondered if you could touch on any particular topics or um, pieces of research either underway or recently uh, completed that have been most uh, most interesting uh, for you. Well, I'm working on a project uh, that is trying to build a database that is prepared for AI and my and it is a team based effort so multiple teams across multiple institutions um, working together to collect 
data on patients with diabetes in order to create uh, an equitable uh, and just data set that others can use in the context of AI. And there's, so there's a lot of work from a lot of people going on. Uh, there are a number of layers uh, on top of those teams because they're trying to pull several of them together. And then sitting on top of that is kind of the NIH is trying to direct the whole program. And what's interesting is just how we all fall into the same patterns of dysfunction that we've been writing about for all these years and how hard it is to in uh, to actually do it. Um, you know, I don't feel like I have led this multi-team system in or helped to lead this multi-team system in a way that has protected it from certain certain declines. And we see the the challenges associated with bureaucracy. We see the challenges associated with ineffective forms of communication. Uh, and it's just really hard to manage your way out of it. So I give all the credit in the world to the people on the ground trying to do the work because, you know, I see from that one, you know, as I've always known, just how hard, how hard it is, but it's good and humbling to um, be reminded of it. Oh, well, Sarah, I really appreciate that honest reflection. Uh, I think it's important for, for leaders, managers, experts, everybody to to be honest with some of the challenges that they're facing in their in their work life um, so we can better understand them and, and, and hopefully solve, solve many of these types of things. As we draw to a close, I just wondered, is there anything that you would recommend for clinicians perhaps uh, who are looking to, to learn a bit more about organizational behavior, uh, anywhere to start or books to read or anything like that you'd recommend? Thank you for asking the question. I think I would uh, recommend people to some of the work by Ed Shine. Uh, and I say that in part because I would have loved for you to have had the opportunity to interview him and we lost him this year. So you, you didn't get that opportunity to interview him as part of the podcast. Um, so I'd recommend highly to um, clinicians who are looking for opportunities to lead and to manage because Ed uh, is one of the great thinkers about organizational culture, um, but also about humility and, and in particular, humble leadership and humble inquiry and forms of interacting with other people to promote the most learning, to promote the most input, to promote the best forms of listening um, in order to be able to kind of gain the greatest insight to move the work forward. And it's pretty, it's simple on the one hand, and it's extremely profound at the same time. So I leave you with, with that suggestion. Thank you. Yes, his book, uh, Humble Inquiry, uh, I read this year, which is an absolute favorite. So thank you. All right, Professor Sarah Singer, thank you so much for your time today. My, my pleasure. Thank you for having me be part of your podcast. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.